Thank you, Sian. Um, it's good to see you. I haven't seen you for a little while. So you've been avoiding me, I think. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> for those of you tuning in for the first time, my name is Joe Davis. I'm the pastor here at Grace Life Sarasota. We're continuing with our live stream services. Hopefully in the next uh, week or two, we'll be able to start uh, a soft opening process and maybe get to worshiping soon, but you'll be hearing about that. Uh, we're trying to make plans for it now to do it in a safe way. Uh, but for now, we still get an opportunity to have this communal fellowship through uh, the live stream and with one another. And I, I love how the Bible studies continue to meet with Zoom and all that stuff. But uh, trust me, I'm just as anxious as any of you to get back to worshiping together. You know, it's been pretty amazing during this time since COVID-19 and then, you know, everything going on with the social unrest and the talk, the talk about racism and things like that. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we have not once had to deviate from our chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse teaching of the Gospel of Mark to go to some sort of topical message to address the issues of today. It's fascinating. Every week has been incredibly, extremely uh, relevant to what we're going through as a country, and this week is no different. So um, we're continuing our series on Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark. We've called it Mark the Evangelist. <clears throat> the last two sermons have been stories about Jesus and his love for Gentiles and also in the process training his disciples to understand that the gospel was not just for Jews but for the whole world. Week one, the message was called Gentile Wisdom, about how this Gentile woman had incredible wisdom and discernment that impressed Jesus. Week two is about how God gives Gentiles a voice, and we talked about you know, how we're supposed to use our voice to speak out against things, but also to connect it with the gospel. Otherwise, it's kind of a waste of our voice if we don't share the gospel. And week three, I've entitled this week, this is the last sermon in this little mini-series within the series about Jesus and his love for Gentiles. I've called it a Gentile picnic. So, have you ever been in a situation where you felt totally out of place? Nothing in common with anyone. So just a personal example, I love a good picnic, especially with people I know and care about, family, friends. Once a year we were doing, until this year, that baptism picnic at Lido Beach. That's always been a lot of fun. I also want you to know that within the picnic love, there's a greater love, which is my love for potato salad, especially with Carolina mustard barbecue sauce on it. I just love that. I love coleslaw. I love grilled chicken. I love grilled sausages. I love burgers. I love baked beans. What's not to love about a picnic? And I remember about 10 years ago, there's this really good friend of mine. He's a black guy, and he invited me to this big picnic. He said, there's going to be about 40 people there. He says, you're going to be the only white guy there, but I want you to meet my friends. I said, I'd love to go. It's going to be a blast. So I got there. I was a little bit before him, and that's okay. And I was politely talking to people I'd never met, and, and they were great. I mean, they were nice. They were welcoming, but I didn't know them. And I'm waiting for my friend. And then he texts me. At the last minute, says something came up, and I have to cancel. Well, I can't leave now. I'm already there. Talk to people. If I just get up and leave, that looks weird. So I didn't know anyone. I was the only white guy there. Everyone was genuinely nice, but it was still awkward. So to cope with the awkwardness, 
I did what any rational, sane, reasonable person would do. I just started eating potato salad. A ton of it. For hours, potato salad, baked beans, coleslaw, and I just ate because the more awkward I felt, well, I'll just get another bite. That's my story. More on that story later. Let's look at the passage today from Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. In those days, remember, Jesus and his disciples are in a deep Gentile region. There's no Jewish culture anywhere to be found. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. Then he had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were filled. And they took up broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, which really means about 15,000 when you count the women and the children. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. So we look at each passage with three ways. The first is the history of the passage. I want to talk about a Gentile boot camp. Before we get to that, I want you to understand there's a lot of people that think this is a fake picnic, that it didn't really happen. This is the last part of Jesus' long Gentile mission and a story that many use to criticize the veracity of the Bible. Did you know that? A lot of critics that want to attack the Scripture charge that Mark took the story of the 5,000 Jews he fed in Galilee and all he did was merely copy it in this region so as to reinforce the concept that the gospel wasn't just for Jews. They think he just kind of made it up. But there are specific details that support that this is, in fact, a separate event. First of all, the crowd is much smaller. It's about 15,000 total versus 25,000 for the feeding of the Jews in Galilee, that big feeding of the 5,000 picnic. This one takes place not on a grassy hillside, like the one in Galilee, this one takes place basically in a desolate, dusty desert. Consistent with this region, it was kind of a dusty place. In chapter 6, they, fill, they filled up with leftovers afterwards 12 baskets. And they remember, they were smaller baskets. Now, remember, we did a study of the Greek word. It was a Jewish, small, like daily lunch pail type of basket. This time, it's seven baskets of leftovers. But the Greek word in this story is very different from the basket word in the story in chapter 6. This one is a more of a Gentile-style basket, and it's a huge basket, a massive basket. Not a tiny Jewish lunch basket, but a big Gentile hauling basket. So in reality, while it just says seven baskets instead of 12, it's actually a lot more food. And later in Mark, Jesus actually references both miracles when he's talking to the disciples to communicate an important truth that we're probably going to look at next week or the week after. And basically he says, <clears throat> having eyes to see, having ears, do you not hear? 
Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for 5,000 and many baskets full of broken pieces you did take up? They said to him, 12. And how many? And they said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? So he actually references two separate picnics. So that's the first thing I want you to understand, that it's pretty evident these are two separate events. There's a lot of different details, and Jesus refers to both of them as separate. But now I want to talk about the other part of this historical application. That is the hard learning that's going on here. So let's address some of the cultural issues. The disciples, along with almost every first century Jew, believed that they were special. They had an exclusive connection to Jehovah. They grew up being taught that Gentiles could never receive God's blessing. They were taught to almost, well, not almost, they were actually taught that it was righteous to hold animosity towards Gentiles. And Gentiles knew how Jews felt, and so they reciprocated that disdain toward Jews. They were different races that hated each other. Uh, You guys remember Pastor Daryl, one of the pastors that helped start Grace Life. His wife, Deb Davis, is Jewish. Before she was a believer, she said that she realized after she became a Christian that she would define the Jewish mindset as thinking that if you're born Jewish, spiritually, you are an exceptional race. Spiritually. Now Jesus, though, is teaching his disciples with no ambiguity, uh, no, you're not the exception they are. See, Jesus is training them to take the gospel to all nations, to the ends of the earth. He's basically saying, listen, I'm here teaching you because you're going to have to come back here when I'm gone. And this isn't a concept Jesus could just teach verbally from the comfort of Galilee. He had to force them to experience, to feel it, to see it. Because if they had to go on their own for the first time, they never would. He forces them to do it. And the last several months for the disciples have been extremely difficult, very emotionally and culturally hard on them. I mean, every Gentile, understand this, every Gentile miracle that Jesus does is a cultural punch in the gut for them. Every time he does something to show love and compassion for the Gentiles, they naturally, their, their tendency would be, because of what they've been taught since they were young, is to cringe. Here they are in Gentile territory, away from home, having their entire worldview dismantled piece by piece. It's rough. They've been exposed to unimaginable things. The most Gentilish of Gentile culture any Jew in the region has ever faced. There's no kosher deli in sight. There's no synagogue. There's no temple. There's no rabbis traveling around teaching the Torah except for Jesus. And he's interacting with Gentiles. They're facing stuff no Jew has really ever faced. I mean, they've gone into Gentile reasons to do business, but to stay there for months, no thank you. These are, it's amazing, right? Nobody's speaking Hebrew. These are Gentile cities full 
of idol worship, pagan Gentile culture. They are culturally shell-shocked. They're extremely uncomfortable. I imagine they're not sleeping very well. The food is very foreign to them. We're eating what? Bacon? (laughs) But they're learning hard lessons that the gospel is for the ends of the earth, including these Gentiles. It's not just for Jerusalem. And Jesus would cement that at the end of Matthew when he talks about the Great Commission in chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. So that's the history of what's going on. Let's look at the spiritual or the theology. What about God or Jesus? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I want to talk about divine compassion. So instead of focusing on the details of the story where they break the bread and they feed, we've done that before. We know it basically happens the same way as it did in in chapter 6. I'm going to focus instead on a very key part of the story, which is Jesus' personal first-person declaration where he says, I have compassion for these people. So I'm going to give you a little Greek lesson like we like to do every once in a while. This is the Greek word. This is one of the most complicated, complex Greek words I've taught you yet. Splangizomai. It is actually, this is a, this is a, a word, a verb, a first-person aorist active verb. And let me explain what that means. What that means is it is an action that took place in the past and is continuing to play, take place right now in the present and it is anticipated to continue on in the future. So it started in the past it was an aorist, which is the aorist means past in the Greek. And active means it's happening now. So it is an action that started and is continuing and will continue. It's aorist active. That is the tense of the verb. That's very important. Think about that. A past action continuing to now, even today. I have compassion for the people. And the meaning of the word, it means to be moved with compassion as to feel its effects in your belly. Some would say you feel it in your gut. I have so much compassion that my stomach is a little bit upset. My stomach is churning because of my my deep felt compassion and love for them. My heart is beating a little heavier. I have this feeling in my stomach. It is a divine, first-person, aorist, active declaration by our Lord of his past and continuing compassion for these Gentiles. That's what we're talking about here. He is saying to the Jews, the disciples, something they really don't want to hear. I have had compassion. I continue to have compassion for these Gentiles, this different race than you. So I want to describe specifically this compassion that Jesus has in three ways. First of all, I want you to see his compassion, it's offensive. Remember, everything he does here wasn't just for the Gentiles, but it's also an object lesson for his disciples. He declares his compassion for the hungry crowd And the disciples challenge him like they did with the Gentile woman, you know, a chapter earlier. And he says, I have this compassion, this, this passive, active, continual compassion for the Gentiles. They're hungry. Remember, the cities in Decapolis were spread out very far. 
So there's a lot of room in between, and this region is very desert and arid. And they're saying, there's nothing around here. How can you feed them? What kind of bread? Look, they're not saying, well, Jesus, you can't do that. There's no food. You're thinking, well, did they forget about the feeding of the 5,000? Well, of course they didn't forget. Who could forget about miraculously feeding the 5,000? It's humanly impossible to forget that miracle. That's not what's going on here. They haven't forgotten. But there are many commentaries, and I agree with them. They say their question is not about his power. Jesus, can you really feed them? It's really a question of his motives, just like it was with the Gentile woman. What are you going to do here, Jesus? I mean, surely, Jesus, surely you're not going to do the same miracle picnic for these Gentiles that you did for the Jews in Galilee. I mean, there's got to be a line somewhere, right, Jesus? I mean, yeah, I understand some healing every once in a while and some talking, but you're not going to feed them like we did in Galilee. What are you really going to? So they're questioning his motives. Come on, Jesus. Is there no difference between us and these dogs? Can't we have at least one section of you that is distinctively, well, yes, Jesus loves you, but <laughs> us. I mean, this is clearly the context that the Jews, that the disciples are struggling with in chapter 7 and chapter 8. It's a persistent position and a bias and a prejudice in them that says, wait, you can't just bless feed, heal, and save all the Gentiles. They are cut off, you know. Then I want to talk about the diversity of his compassion. Up to this point, Jesus has had compassion on everyone, from the crowds in Galilee to the Gentiles here in the desert, all different races of people. And the crowd's been lingering for three days, sleeping in the dirt, no near, town nearby, they're starving, and this declaration is a compassionate, actively continuing display of love and concern, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles. And get this, you know why it's an aorist active, a past action continuing? Because this compassion that Jesus declares continues way past the Gentile picnic and all the way to the cross. And then to us today, right now. So those are the two things. First off, it's offensive compassion. It's diverse compassion. Now I want to talk about the fact that it is very costly compassion. In Hebrews 2.17, here's what the scripture says. Therefore, Jesus, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, not just Jewish brothers, but Jewish and Gentile, so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a payment for the sins of the people. So Jesus becomes a man, and it's not just so that he could be compassionate and empathetic and to heal and feed people. That's just one part. The most important reason he became a man, listen to me, the most important reason is so that he could pay the ultimate price and die to be the payment for our sin. On the cross, John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So this compassion is so costly. The price is extremely high. Let's go to the personal. I want to talk about diversity in the church. 
Isn't that relevant to what we're talking about today in the country? Here was my Sunday sermon preview this week. Everyone wants diversity as long as they can get it at a discount. So last week in my sermon, I discussed the importance of showing compassion for those who are hurting. Remember, we talked about that. I want you to know something. That sermon wasn't something I picked out because of current events. It wasn't topical, a narrative motivated by the headlines. It was much more than that. It's the whole point of Jesus' mission to Gentile lands, to teach the disciples about diversity in the application of the gospel. And I think it's safe to say, I mean, at least it's fashionable to say, especially right now, that we all want diversity, right? We would love it in our churches. And there are exceptions to the rule, but sadly, diversity even in church, is quite rare. It's just not a natural human tendency, this idea of diversity. Oh, it's a natural tendency to talk about it. It's a natural tendency to make it happen temporarily, like we see right now in some instances. But sooner or later, life will go back to normal. You know what I call this? I call this the homogenous principle. Not me, but other people have called it. No, I'm just going to take credit for it. I made this up. This is all me. Left to their own, People tend to gather in tribes with similar cultures, ethnicity, and life experiences. Tell me that's not true. I mean, you can argue with me if you want. Fair enough. But I have an overwhelming cache of historical, empirical data and evidence on my side. Throughout human history, thousands of years, humans have tended to go against diversity, And nothing's changed. Diversity will always be a struggle. Frankly, it's the heartbreaking reason that even churches are mostly, not all, but they're mostly segregated by race or social economic background. For example, my first job as a pastor was as a youth pastor in Tampa at a Chinese church. Many of them were Chinese nationals. Some of them didn't even speak English. I was the only white American there. I mean, I enjoyed it. I was telling somebody before church, I I was saying, I wish I had been more wise when I had the job. I could have learned so much more than I did. But see, here's the problem, church. There is a huge part of Christ's message that we see in chapter 7 and 8 of Mark that it is clearly this, that the church is to be made up of all people, of every tribe and every nation. Yet many Christians lose that part of Jesus' message. Sometimes we do it subconsciously. We don't even realize it. But what's really disgusting is sometimes we do it intentionally. And when we do it intentionally, we're deceiving ourselves and we think, you know, yeah, diversity is great, but we're a white church. Or, yeah, diversity is great, but we're a black church. And our ministries look like that. Ministries that reach out to people that look and sound and feel and act like us. And that leads to what I like to call fashionable diversity. Everybody extols diversity. 
especially when it's fashionable like right now. But let's be honest, real diversity, lasting diversity, is actually rare except in a few pockets. And the world around us, I'm talking about the non-redeemed world, is exceptionally good at this kind of surface diversity. Made to be marketed, to get likes, and it is filled with the motivation of virtue signaling. It's not heartfelt. I saw a video of a woman this week in Los Angeles, a white woman. She's driving through a a night after there were some violent riots in L.A. And there's this black guy who's in the middle of the street with a shovel and he's cleaning stuff up in his neighborhood. She gets out of this expensive car, has her boyfriend take a picture of her with a shovel next to the guy, and then thanks him and gets back in her car and drives away. I saw the video. She probably got thousands of likes. She might be an Instagram influencer. I don't know. But it's fake. See, this kind of, of fashionable diversity is fleeting. It is temporal. It is, in fact, impotent. It is a public display that is a mile wide and an inch deep. It's a farce. Which leads me to the type of diversity that the church must have. I want to call it sacrificial diversity. And why is diversity so elusive? We want it easy. We'll take diversity as long as we're comfortable with it, as long as it's convenient and non-intrusive within our current budget and our current schedule and calendar. We want to schedule it. We want to quarantine our diversity. We want our diversity to be in certain places of our life, but not in others. We want to promote it on our social media feeds. We want to film it. We want to photograph it, but we really don't want to pay for it. But that's not how it comes. Sacrificial diversity only comes when we are diligent and intentionally working to make our ministries as diverse as possible. Luckily for us at Grace Life, we have some very effective conduits for diversity. You know, I'm just going to run off a few. Lisa Kay's team with the food pantry and the mercy part of the ministry reaches a truly diverse group of people in our community. I see them. I love it. We support Bruce Hedgepeth in his crucial ministry to Latin American young people through Young Life. Man, I got to tell you, we need that guy in there. Because he is helping us be intentionally diverse. So we've got to pour in resources to what he's doing. We have our very own Pedro Rodriguez that we support through his ministry that he started this year, Urban Youth Justice, ministering to hurting minority kids. 80% of the kids in the detention centers he goes to are minorities. He is helping us be diverse as we invest and sacrifice to give him what he needs to do his work. Each year, Cianne leads our Day of Hope. She helps lead our angel tree, our Thanksgiving dinners, and that also is to a remarkably diverse crowd. I'm so thankful for all of these conduits of diversity that we are investing in in our church. But here's the problem with those. We've been doing them for a while, and they're becoming extremely easy. We absorb the cost. We've absorbed any 
type of discomfort. And now we need to do so much more with these ministries, expand our reach into those, and we need to create new ones. We need to be innovative, creative, open to new ministries that expand our diversity to the point that we are uncomfortable with it, that we are actually paying a price. Look, diversity in ministry costs a lot more than homogenous singularity in ministry. It costs more time. It costs more money. It costs more exposure. It costs us with different uh, exposure to cultures. And just like the disciples, you think the disciples were uncomfortable? Just like the disciples were uncomfortable with diversity, we should and can expect the same for us if we truly intentionally pursue sacrificial diversity. I mean, well, diversity cost our Lord dearly, did it not? His life, shouldn't we be willing to let it cost us just a little something too? Which brings me to my last point today, which is eternal diversity. So let's just be real with each other. Truthfully, sadly, on earth, most corporate worship experiences, maybe even ours, I don't know what God holds, but they'll probably never be as diverse as we would like them. When people come into worship with us that don't look like us, they might stand out a little bit because, you know, Grace Life is a predominantly white church. We may struggle with that for our entire history. I don't know. But we have to maintain the intentional effort to make our ministry diverse. You know why? Because the payoff for diversity in ministry in eternity is the most moving, stunning, diverse worship service you can even imagine. Let me read to you a passage from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, and then we'll go to verse 16. John writes this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, And languages, isn't that beautiful? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. They're all crying out in the same thing with different languages. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then look at this. See if you can make a connection to today's passage. I even underlined it and bold it for you in case you missed it. They shall hunger no more. What was Jesus' compassionate cry? I have compassion because they're hungry. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. What an awesome church service that will be. I mean, the gathering before, right, will be awesome. The music will be off the chain. And then Jesus brings the sermon. <laughs> and then afterwards, he feeds us all at this big Gentile picnic. <laughs> I can't wait. His potato salad is the best, trust me. I think that what we should do as a church is really consider this and really begin to think about expanding 
and investing in and planning and preparing for and practicing for that type of diversity that we see right there, practicing it now. Don't you think? And if we can't get diversity in this room on a Sunday morning, how about we strive for it and invest in it on Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Spend the money. Spend the time. Make sure we're uncomfortable. Make sure we're stretching ourselves. Because after all, isn't that the message that Jesus spent three months in Gentile regions teaching his disciples? Heavenly Dad, we ask that you would help us to be more diverse in our ministry. Take away the, the fear of investing. Take away the fear of the cost. Take away the fear of being and looking different. I pray, God, that you would help us to have creativity and innovation when it comes to expanding the diversity and impact of grace life. Lord, and we also pray that by your sovereign grace, you would give us conduits like the ones you already have. Help us invest in those more and give us new ones that expand our diversity. Because after all, it's one of the most important lessons that you give us. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thank you for tuning in today. I hope you have a great week. We love you. Uh, meeting again soon is just around the corner. We've got to work out some details, but it's coming. Be patient with us. If you need anything this week during this time, let us know we got your back. Have a great day.